Ilya Ponomarev is a Russian-Ukrainian politician who was a member of the Russian State Duma from 2007 to 2016. After the 2022 Russian invasion, Ponomarev joined Ukraine's territorial defense forces and categorically denounced the invasion. While a member of the Russian State Duma, he was the only deputy not to vote in favor of the Russian gay propaganda law and to vote against Russia's annexation of Crimea in March 2014. In 2015, while in the US, Ponomarev was formally charged in Russia with embezzlement, which is a charge he calls politically motivated. In 2016, he was impeached for not performing his duties and went into exile in Ukraine, where he obtained Ukrainian citizenship in 2019. Ilya has endorsed acts of sabotage and arson in Russia and claims to be a spokesman with insurgent Russian forces, specifically the National Republican Army, fighting on the side of Ukraine. Welcome to Silicon Cut and please like and subscribe to discover more incredible speakers on the channel and to get really in-depth coverage and historical context uh, behind the war. Please also check out the Ukrainian charities that we list in the description of the video. And if you like the work that we do, please do consider becoming a patron or buy me a coffee. Ilya, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to the channel. Thanks for having me. I just have one uh, correction on my bio. I was impeached not for not performing my duties, but for actually performing my duties to the country of the majority of the rest of other fellow members of the group. That's a crucial difference. Turning up and voting the wrong way is uh, far more dangerous. <laughs> and that's the first question, really, because I'm I'm sort of fascinated by the uh, the Potemkin facade of Russian politics and the hollow exercise that has become. Um, but for many, many years during the sort of hybrid phase of Putin's regime, and even after Bolotno in 2012, people still debated endlessly, you know, whether someone was or wasn't opposition. And it had this incredible um, puppet show of politics. You were on the inside, however. How real was that, you know? Um, People like the leader of uh, Yablaka, for instance, and the communist faction, Zhuganov. I mean, how organic was any of this politics? Well, you know, I think that you, you refer to Potemkin uh, villages. Uh, I would rather refer uh, to another, uh, uh, it was a great uh, phrase, which was once said by uh, John Le Carre in one of uh, his spy books when he was describing uh, Russian architecture, Moscow architecture, actually, he called it style empire during the plague. And I think that very much uh, fits uh, the description of the modern day Russian politics. Uh, uh, so uh, it is a major plague. Uh, the, uh, the country is uh, falling apart. So the uh, uh, whole fabric of Russian statehood right now is being uh, dissolved. Uh, which uh, sped up dramatically uh, after the large-scale invasion in Ukraine in uh, 2022. But they pretend that everything is all right. And waving the flags and singing songs and enjoying life and uh, reporting like uh, they just bypassed Germany uh, as the economic power and, uh, and, and things like that. But for some reason, average uh, uh, Russian receives uh, three times lower wage than an average German. 
but like the Russian economy is greater than the, than the German economy. Uh, in, in terms of these political parties and everything, I, that's, it's all fake, you know, it's all, it's all part of this imitation. Uh, uh, once uh, uh, Surkov called the Russian political system as a sovereign democracy, I would rather say it's imitational democracy. Uh, formally there are elections, formally there is president, formally there is parliament, but in fact there is no parliament, no president and it's no democracy altogether. It's, it's like the old Soviet phrase, you know, everyone knows it's pretend, but they sort of play their roles and they say their lines. Of course, sometimes people go off script. And I think this is this is kind of an interesting conjunction here. We had the assassination of Daria Dugina, um, uh, um, Vladimir Tatarsky as well, uh, which is incredibly theatrical assassination, you know, being assassinated by a, a bust of yourself. Um, it, it, it's a sort of in, incredibly sort of uh, absurd thing that you might actually have in, in one of these postmodern books by someone like Surkov. Um, and there are many, many sort of claims there. How far do you think it's maybe, uh, and I know there has been claims that uh, this was carried out by external forces, um, Ukraine has been blamed, I know certain groups that you're in communication with have claimed responsibility for it. Could it not also have been the FSB really targeting someone who is going off script, is has decided their role is far bigger than the one allotted to them, similarly to what happened to Prigozhin later? Well, look, uh, it's very uh, easier uh, to identify the style uh, of Russian security forces uh, and tell the difference. Um, uh, when they were targeting um, well, opposition members, uh, they were using Novichok and became famous for it. Uh, so that was the style, that's their signature, um, uh, which uh, goes uh, back in the tradition of the uh, Soviet Union. Um, um, then there are several assassinations which were carried out by certain Kremlin's allies, like, for example, uh, murder of Anna Politkovska. Uh, um, there was a, an attack on one of the uh, 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 Chechen resistance uh, fighters in Germany, uh, also, which was shot. Uh, but uh, it was not done by FSB, it was done by uh, uh, um, groups which are associated with, with Kremlin, but is not Kremlin itself. Uh, uh, so that's why, obviously, uh, you know, that's, these debates, they uh, are being usually inspired by the Russian opposition, um, uh, which is in exile and uh, feels uh, very uncomfortable being in exile and being out of business, so to say. And obviously, for them, it's more comfortable to say that, oh, you know, everything that goes up in Russia, it's because FSB or it's because Gur from Ukraine. Uh, but uh, they denied the Russians the right to fight, uh, uh, which to me is, uh, uh, is, is kind of immoral, uh, because I think that obviously the future of Russia needs to be done by Russians themselves. And there are a lot of Russians who are ready to put up the fight, and they are doing it. Right now, every day, every day we see new reports coming from Russia about the new acts of sabotage, and new actions, new new moves, and, uh, and and new heroes. And this is a really interesting point, isn't it? This is something I I've been trying to sort of debate uh, over the last two years on the channel, and I get the sense that people are very very uncomfortable 
thinking and talking about more radical steps. Um, you have yourself who is perhaps on uh, you know, a certain spectrum towards taking direct action. Uh, there's Khardohovsky, uh, Kasparov, who are not quite in that region yet, but they're certainly thinking far more radically, perhaps, in terms of future Russia than many of the other oppositionists. And then you have uh, Navalny and the team who are very expert at uh, producing media products far perhaps less active in 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 organizing in agitating in you know creating demonstrations of opposition on the ground um do you think you know do you think that approach is going to achieve anything or i assume that the that, that direct action in your view is the only way to to actually beat uh you know the regime and the kremlin and its sort of architecture that keeps it in power well look my uh uh, take is quite simple. I think that uh, let the thousand flowers bloom. Uh, and uh, I believe that any action is better than inaction. Obviously, there are certain actions which are wrong actions. And uh, to my mind, uh, participation in uh, these so-called elections right now in, in, in March 2024 uh, is counterproductive. Uh, uh, we shouldn't ignore it but we definitely shouldn't go to the polling stations. But there are people who think differently and who I am to stop them. Uh, at the same time, they do believe that uh, attack on Tatarsky is uh, counterproductive uh, for whatever reason. You know, well, I, uh, I think they are wrong uh, and I don't want them to, uh, to stop my colleagues in, uh, in, in doing this uh, because I think they believe in their cause, they are sincere. And uh, uh, people uh, like Tatarsky are definitely the worst one mongers uh, that you can think of. And they are very uh, actively supporting this war, organizing this war, financing this war. And they're directly in charge of uh, murder of thousands and thousands of Ukrainians. Uh, but uh, what I strongly believe in is that no political change at the end of the day would be possible without uh, application of force. And that's why it needs to be a certain part of the opposition which is armed. Otherwise, the power would stay within the same circle as it is right now, and maybe even like Putin would be personally replaced, but Putinism uh, would stay uh, in place. And uh, uh, a lot of your colleagues, journalists, they uh, like when they write in articles about what I am doing, they always like to, to write, oh, this man would replace Putin, or this man would not replace Putin, or whether this man would replace Putin. There's no point in arguing about this, uh, because we want not to replace Putin, we want to replace Putinism. And that's where I certainly we will be able to succeed, because we do have the force to do it. And this is a question actually asked uh, Mr. Kharachovsky when he was in London a couple of months ago, because um, unlike many who perhaps have his book on their shelf, I actually read it in, in, in detail. And what I found sort of fascinating there, and I think this is one of the most challenging things, is you can replace Putin, you can replace Putinism, but that entire system exists because of a vertical of interests. Um, it also exists because of the extraction of wealth from oil and gas in a kind of almost parasitic vertical. In order to replace Putinism, do you not also have to replace the entire 
economic system that depends on the, the production of hydrocarbons, but not production of finished manufactured goods, for instance, which is a far more complex economy that requires trust, legal basis, and you know a developed uh, social and political system. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, unfortunately, most of uh, people inside the opposition, uh, they are not thinking uh, about the future. Many just because they don't believe in it. <laughs> they don't believe in any change. They believe in the process. They see themselves in the process, but uh, uh, they don't even care to think about uh, uh, what it would be and they kind of restrain themselves and say, no, there will be democracy, there will be free elections, and that's let free elections uh, uh, decide, uh, uh, you know, who would be where. Uh, and it's the same like to believe in the free market, which would decide everything. Uh, it, it doesn't work like this. Uh, Khodorkovsky actually um, the only uh, uh, person uh, which goes uh, beyond that. Uh, and he's saying, so, okay, let's think about future. And he uh, put together a book where he put some ideas uh, about uh, what it should be. Uh, but uh, also to me, it's very much like... Uh, uh, okay, we will not drive classic car, but we will drive electric car. But how to construct this electric car? What should be the pieces in that electric car? Mm, you know, there are not not that type of details in in that book. Uh, uh, and uh, these uh, uh, bits and pieces uh, of the statehood is uh, the national legislation legislation. Um, it's the particular laws, it's the particular uh, uh, legal acts uh, which actually design the system, how it works. It's these little cogs uh, that, that would make it move. And uh, here, probably the only part of the Russian opposition which is thinking about this is this uh, Congress of People's Deputies, um, uh, which is the assembly of, uh, of a member of parliaments, uh, uh, of different levels uh, and of different times, so which know how to design the legislation. And that's where the new uh, constitution, the new basic set of laws is being drafted. So we, we started moving in, in that direction and combination of this clear vision and the armed forces is the solution to the change, is the recipe. And uh, there's, there's a characteristic, I think, which is shared by almost all countries which uh, had substantial former empires, uh, and I include you know, Britain in that, there's always a risk of this idea of exceptionalism, that somehow we're gonna be the originators of the solution, the solution is gonna be unique to us. Um, the extreme ends of that, uh, you, you know, people will actually ignore and say, well, uh, Europe can't have the solution or somebody else can't have the solution. It seems to me that within Ukraine, They've had multiple revolutions. You've had a threshold of citizens who've actively got involved in power, fighting for power, being prepared to die for power, and then thinking about how to then structure that power to achieve certain definable goals. And not just a handful of people, many, many hundreds of thousands of people have directly become involved in that process. Do you think the Russian opposition should be really examining the mechanisms that have allowed Ukraine to, I would say, blossom in this post-Soviet era and, and, and develop an organic quasi-revolutionary process um, that's delivering, you know, tremendous results. There seems to be, uh, there seems to be a certain element that, that says, no, no, that's, 
that's a Ukrainian solution. That's not one for us. Well, look, of course, there are uh, certain differences uh, uh, between Ukrainians and Russians, and quite a lot of them. Uh, but I don't think that uh, there are many in the political sense. Um, I would even say that uh, probably Russians should have a certain advantage because of the uh, uh, tradition of uh, uh, statehood and uh, uh, Russia was sucking off the best talent uh, from Ukraine for many, many centuries. Uh, and so Ukrainians need to, uh, uh, at, at, at the bottom line, you know, to build everything from the scratch, uh, uh, which gives them certain advantage in this sense, but also it's a disadvantage because they have uh, a lack of necessary technical, again, experience. Uh, but uh, in Russia, there is another problem. And this problem is that uh, for uh, many also years, uh, and that didn't change in 1991. Uh, so it was a brief moment before 1993, after there was a, a, a coup in Moscow, uh, uh, which was carried out by people who were calling themselves Democrats, but which were not very democratic and which shot the uh, parliament from the tanks. Uh, and that sent a very powerful message to the general population, stay home. Uh, you just relax. You know, there are some other competent people who would handle the management of the state for you and which would make the decisions. And uh, if in the 90s we still had certain elections which were coming more and more distorted, but nevertheless, at least there was influence of people over uh, the formation of the structures of, uh, of power. Then in the 2000s, already, you know, uh, it, it was more and more imitation. And that's why people just don't know what they can do. Um, um, uh, they just resign to their to their fate. Uh, there is even such a, a term of sociologists, Russian sociologists, a syndrome of learned importance. Uh, and when you know people are just sitting doing doing nothing, they say, okay, so we cannot influence the decision whether to enter the war or exit the war. Uh, uh, we cannot influence who would be the next prime minister. We cannot influence what would be the level of taxes. We, we cannot influence the social policy. So we better, you know, keep home and uh, we care about our kids. We solve our small problems. Uh, uh, and, and this is it. Uh, and uh, that's why it is um, very un unprobable to me uh, that uh, people would just rise and, and change the power and would start designing something. They first need to be shown that actually it's real now, that uh, you are the power. Navalny likes to shout this uh, uh, slogan at, the, at many political rallies, like, you are the power here. But even those who came to those rallies, they don't believe that they have the power. Yes, they like to shout the same, but, you know, that's, that's not what comes really inside the head. Uh, so that's why uh, what I think needs to be done, we need to start from the municipal reform. And that's where we have a lot to learn, by the way, from Ukraine. Ukraine has done a brilliant uh, reform of decentralization and, uh, and delegating the powers to the local level, to the local of lo local communities. Also was learning from Polish uh, in, 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 in this regard, and also accumulate Polish experience, Ukrainian experience. And that's where the first free elections actually should happen. All those active people, they should uh, they should emerge there. Only then 
new political parties would be formed and, and the federal structure of power would be formed. And that's once again why I'm saying about the armed resistance, because those who, who think that by themselves, you know, something would happen in a very autocratic state where all these crews are tight, there is no free media, there is no tradition of uh, popular solidarity, where is a lot of fear noise. Firstly, something needs to, to happen on top, but then we need to strike and, and to enable people to govern. And that takes us to the war, of course, and the strategy for helping Ukraine to win, because there seems to be a sort of divergence here. In the US, you know, we had uh, with you until victory, uh, you know, as long as it takes. It's a fairly undefinable kind of phrase, but it's still something that then moved to as long as we can. And and now the money's run out. Um, what needs to change here uh, in, in, in Western strategy and in particular strategy in uh, Washington in terms of saying, no, Ukraine must win. And this is what a victory means. And this is how it's going to be achieved. I mean, do you think one of the problems is that's never quite been defined uh, by Western partners? You know, there is such an ironic Russian phrase that we cannot get lost because we don't know where we're going to. Uh, and that's fully applicable to the Western policies towards Ukraine at this present moment. If you don't uh, have the vision of victory, if you don't know what you want to achieve during this war, it's all pointless. And it becomes uh, not uh, a military exercise. You are not actually uh, targeting to win. You are targeting out of humanitarian purposes, you know, out of solidarity uh, to, to help Ukrainians to sustain the pressure. But that can last forever. And uh, we should face it that Russia, at the end of the day, is a way more powerful economy than Ukraine. And uh, it's either uh, we need to pour really a lot of money into Ukraine, or the war of attrition, it's not going in our favor. Uh, uh, the way to win, and I do believe in the victory, 100% I do believe in the victory, but it has... Uh, 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 to include a very clear vision of what we want to achieve. Why uh, American politicians are saying there to their uh, uh, constituents, so we are here not to let Ukraine lose. Because it's a very uh, uh, simple notion for ordinary guys. You know, our friends should not be beaten. Let's protect them. Okay, but that does not need any additional explanation you know, uh, uh, about the victory. To, to say to people that we need to win uh, uh, over Russia, that requires an explanation. What does it mean that uh, we're going to win? What are we going to achieve? What is the benefit for an ordinary American taxpayer? What he would get in return when uh, the victory would happen? Um, uh, and that's a very natural answer. When we just had uh, this uh, uh, international conference in uh, London, uh, we went uh, to Churchill War Rooms in, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in London and were uh, reading a lot about uh, how long did it take for Churchill to convince Americans to enter the war. 
And only when it appears that it's a grave danger for themselves, only then when it, uh, uh, when, when it happens, right? So um, it's the same situation uh, here. People need to understand what's in for them uh, in, in, in combating Kremlin. And I think it's a, it's a lengthy process. I am pretty optimistic that Americans would uh, deploy the financial aid pretty soon. Uh, I'm not that worried about, uh, about this, but I do worry that we don't have this uh, vision. I think this vision um, uh, would emerge only from Ukraine, uh, from Eastern Europeans, and the only uh, actually nation of the West that uh, where I put my hopes with is the UK. I think that uh, British are long thinking enough, uh, and these memories of World War One and World War Two, uh, you know, they are imprinted in, in the British political DNA uh, to understand that we need to have uh, those answers. And I was not surprised that uh, it was uh, UK Parliament who uh, firstly put a, a major international conference on this matter. And, uh, of course, uh, the UK has also been the first one to enter into a bilateral security arrangement with Ukraine. So there's no real practical benefit, but it's very strong signalling. Could it also be that Britain knows that empires don't exist forever and it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world uh, when an imperial phase of a country's history passes? Um, However, this misunderstanding of this it seems to me, is what's informing the US. Rather than supplying Ukraine not to lose or to win, it seems to me the subtext is supply Ukraine so that it won't beat Russia decisively and Russia won't collapse. Uh, So that seems to be a defense mechanism that the US is putting in place to protect itself, escalation management. Um, First of all, I want to hear what you think about that. And then secondly, it doesn't seem to be working very well. (laughs) <laughs> no, yeah, uh, I, I do agree with you that the rationale behind a lot of decisions by the U.S. administration is exactly uh, that uh, uh, the paramount importance is not to let uh, escalation happen, as if it, if it didn't happen already. Uh, uh, I, to me, you know, there could, could be nothing worse uh, in the sense. Actually, there could be something worse. And I think that if uh, uh, Putin's regime is not defeated, but uh, if there is uh, any sort of uh, ceasefire, peace agreement, as as much as uh, I would love for uh, Ukraine to stop losing its lives, lives of the best uh, men and women, uh, but uh, it's quite clear for me that when there would be uh, no more fighting in Ukraine, in a historically short period of time, there would be an attack on Baltic states and elsewhere, because uh, Putin's logic is that he cannot stop. Uh, if he already transport, uh, transformed the economy uh, onto military rails and mobilized a lot of forces and paying them very high wages. So he cannot just say, okay, guys, you know, uh, uh, you go home and, uh, and I'm still paying you. you know? Then he would receive uh, an army of an angry man with the military experience, armed, and, you know, then the revolution would be totally different uh, uh, than what we are um, envisioning. And I think that he understands this very well. So for him, logic is only to continue uh, uh, fighting, if not in Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, uh, so I think it's uh, it's very short-sighted approach uh, uh, to, to have those fears. 
Uh, and also, it's, uh, it's quite clear that uh, this war, the origin of this war, it's not in Ukraine. Uh, the uh, origin of uh, this war is in Moscow. So the only place where the war can end is Moscow. Uh, and uh, it should be those who started the war who should put the end. And this is this is an interesting point here because, again, amongst the opposition, there is debates. You know, Putin's terrible, but he's not as Stalin yet. Um, it seems to me, however, that what he's done is a particularly sort of postmodern trick here. He's outsourced the gulag to Donbass and Ukraine. And anyone who is uh, not useful to the regime or a threat and the sort of soldiers you're talking about, I suspect he has no intention for them to return alive. One, if they don't return alive, he doesn't have to pay them. Secondly, he doesn't have that oppositional problem. So it's almost we have a sort of a Stalin machine of, of mass destruction and murder sitting in front of our faces, but we fail to recognize it as such. It's uh, it's a great thought uh, you know i would borrow it from you if you if, if i may and <laughs> and, uh, and and repeat it elsewhere but uh, i do agree i do agree he really uh, there is such a very cynical word which i uh, don't like to use but it's 100 uh, applicable unfortunately here he is utilizing uh, the redundant lives of russians uh, he is utilizing the uh, lives of those prisoners is utilizing lives of the most distressed circles of the population, uh, which in this economic system that uh, uh, Putin has built for himself and for his inner circle, this uh, kleptocracy regime, where they have no place and where they have no say, and uh, uh, they, are, they are redundant, they are extra people. Uh, and uh, he wants uh, to, to, to send them to slaughter. It's actually, you know, it's, uh, it's very ironic uh, how Russian regime actually repeats certain things that he's actually doing uh, itself, but uh, uh, applying it to somebody else. One of the most popular uh, fakes that is being distributed by uh, uh, Russian security officers uh, is that uh, as if one day Margaret Thatcher said that Russia should have 40 million people because that's enough to sustain oil and gas economy. She actually never said this. It's a total fake. Uh, uh, but what Putin is doing right now is exactly implementation of this thesis. And he is doing this because he agrees to this thesis. And he believes himself that indeed something like this was was said at one moment. It was another another fake uh, 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 idea, uh, uh, certain ideas of Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, about how U.S. should uh, put Ukraine under uh, U.S. control. You know, it was like an analytical conclusion that uh, the Russian Empire is not possible without uh, without Ukraine. But they take it as if United States has a conscious strategy of taking Ukraine out, you know, putting this in all datos and like whatever, and uh, uh, then making policy decisions based on the, on, 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 uh, the, the fake presumptions that they invented themselves.
there's a lot of projection, isn't there, in Russian propaganda? And if, unfortunately, you listen to Solovyov, Mardan, and all these other people, there's a there's an awful lot of projection of your own, you know, fears and hates and and reality, and and you know, accusing other people of the same. Let me also then link that discussion about the U.S. Uh, and its sort of, uh, I would say, failing strategy uh, or lack of it. Um, and Ukraine, which is incredibly resourceful. And this is something I know you've talked about a lot. And this is where the war is actually going to be won. Is it going to be won on the conventional battlefield? And more or less, it seems that the US has has hinted to Ukraine that this is where they expect the battle to be fought. And then you have the unconventional, the hybrid battlefield. Uh, you have LNG terminals, you have power supplies, heating supplies, oil deposits, infrastructure. As the US uh, seems to be uh, taking itself off the agenda or setting the agenda or setting the rules of engagement, it seems that Ukraine is perhaps edging more towards the unconventional strategy. Do you think this war is actually going to be won through the hybrid efforts as opposed to the more conventional struggle? Well, uh, look, I would answer yes and no. Uh, as I said to me, uh, this war would be won in Kremlin. Uh, but not by a large-scale attack of Ukrainian army, which would uh, move the front all the way to Moscow. No. Uh, that would be done by a relatively small group of people, uh, which was very much demonstrated to us uh, by Evgeny Prigozhin in June last year when he organized his mutiny. He showed exactly how it could be done. Uh, it's not the only way. Uh, but it's one of the potential models uh, which I think uh, would be applied at the moment. Uh, uh, what you are referring to is the attacks on, I don't know, North Stream 2 or uh, recent attack on LNG terminal in Ustluga uh, or many other things. Uh, it's a normal uh, uh, military operations in the back lines uh, on the home front. Some of those operations uh, were carried out by uh, Russian resistance groups. Some of them were carried out by uh, uh, Ukrainian saboteurs. Some of them were joint operations between Russian resistance groups and, um, and Ukrainians. Uh, some of them uh, were made just by uh, Russians uh, out of accident. Uh, and uh, we saw how they were bombing their own cities uh, out of accident. And uh, at the beginning of war, many people asked me, uh, why the hell... Uh, 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 Russian uh, strategic bombers are shooting their cruise missiles above Caspian Sea. And uh, I didn't know the answer for a very long time, but then uh, we uh, actually found out the correct answer because uh, um, one third to one half of the uh, launched missiles are falling down. Uh, they're unable to ignite and, and start their flight, and that's why it's safer to launch them above the sea, and they would uh, just fall, fall into the water. Uh, uh, and uh, well, that's why it's, it's a collective effort, uh, and uh, it's, it's very similar, again, how Allied forces were uh, bombing out, uh, say, Hamburg or Dresden uh, during World War II. It's not because they wanted to slaughter uh, 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 too many civilians because they wanted uh, to destroy uh, certain uh, uh, defense industries 
which were uh, located in, the, in 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 those cities, and that's what we need to do. And uh, again, it's uh, it's a very weird situation. This morning we uh, had another massive uh, uh, missile attack uh, on us uh, in 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 Kiev and another uh, places in in Ukraine. And Ukraine is not allowed to retaliate. Uh, okay, so we as uh, Russian resistance groups, we would help our Ukrainian brothers and sisters to retaliate. And, and and it seems that the allies are more comfortable with that than the idea of, of as you say, Ukrainian forces carrying those things out. Prigozhin is a fascinating case in point because clearly he's a, a vile individual with his hands absolutely steeped in blood. I mean, he's a vicious and brutal individual. But when you listen to him speaking in Russian, he's one of the only figures in the latter part of his life that was saying anything resembling the truth. Um, and he did it with some kind of vicious gangster humor as well and there was something about it you're horrified but you kind of listen anyway because it's quite extraordinary i mean i described him as a kind of unholy fool uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to the traditional russian holy fool character you've described the only way to, to to really defeat the regime is to take the kremlin um maybe not physically because it require a huge army but do what Prigozhin perhaps demonstrated is that really no one's going to come out and defend putin because well, I mean, they're only perhaps defending him because of money and fear and, and all the rest of it. Um, where did Prigozhin go wrong, however? Because he stopped halfway. He seemed to lose the will to go all the way. And maybe that wasn't part of his plan. Um, how, how do you think, you know, someone who is going to execute on this needs to do things differently from Prigozhin? Should he have perhaps... Uh, set up a, a a rival base in the sort of People's Republic of Rostov-on-Don and created a stand there. I mean, how different do you think the next attempt should be? Oh, look, uh, first of all, uh, I uh, think that uh, Prigozhin was never targeting Putin. Uh, I think that uh, the mutiny was real, but it was rather against Shoigu than, uh, than Putin. Uh, uh, but still, you're absolutely right in your observations. Nobody came out to defend uh, Putin, Moscow, and whatever. And I don't have the reason to believe that this situation would change. Because that's what I experienced many times in the past, and that's what I was predicting would happen in, in a situation like this. Uh, uh, I think that actually it would be even worse in, in, in future, because uh, many of people who are supposed to... Uh, be defending Putin, they would have even uh, more belief that, yeah, it's all feasible that the change of power uh, uh, is is feasible. Uh, so I'm not surprised, and uh, obviously I account, uh, uh, I account for this. But uh, uh, that also gives us another very important uh, thing to think of, uh, because uh, our American colleagues. They always uh, uh, are saying that you you know you you do something in inside Russia that would uh, potentially lead to escalation, nuclear arms and whatever. In the situation like this mutiny, or you know, let's forget about the mutiny, Legion Freedom of Russia, the uh, Russian regiment entering uh, uh, Russian territory, where Putin would apply his nuclear arms on, his uh, threat is inside the country. Would he bomb the same Baronish or Bryansk or Kaluga? You know, uh, uh, what the, what's, what's the matter? What's, what's the point in, uh, uh, in attacking other countries? 
you know, uh, that's that's Russian guys who are inside. You know, they, they shouldn't care that much about Putin shooting on, I don't know, London or, or Washington. You know, um, and he understands this, that uh, that would lead only to retaliation on him. And uh, that creates even more danger uh, uh, for, for him. That's why I, I don't believe that any kind of this uh, uh, counterattack is even theoretically possible. If the chances for this are zero. And that, of course, could trigger a mutant in the army, which is perhaps the only section of people who are more aware of what's going on. What would it take, however, uh, to establish, let's say, a People's Republic of, of Belgorod or Bilgorod, as Ukrainians sort of, uh, sort of mockingly call it, that that could could really destabilize the regime and cause all sorts of repercussions, including, uh, you know, a path towards Ukrainian victory. You've written that you have a certain number of, of not you directly, you're, you're a spokesman, obviously, for the organization. But the, the, the Russian free legions that are fighting have somewhere in the order of a thousand uh, new inquiries per month. But what kind of scale of forces would it require yes. to establish an enclave on the territory of Russia that would actually make a, a real difference? Well, look, uh, first of all, uh, we are not uh, targeting uh, to have uh, Belgorod uh, People's Republic. Uh, we need to have uh, Russian People's Republic. Uh, uh, we don't want to uh, uh, take out certain, certain territories. It's uh, just like to demonstrate that it's a possibility to show the flag, but uh, that's what we started doing in 2023 when there was a, a major uh, operation in, inside Russia. And that's what uh, everybody witnessed, that it's, again, that it is a possibility. Uh, but uh, we couldn't control this territory long term because we could not use uh, any serious weapons uh, inside Russia because we are prohibited from, uh, from, from doing this. In particular, we don't have artillery means uh, that can be used inside Russia. And without that, we are just putting our men to slaughter and a lot of civilians uh, in the liberated cities uh, to slaughter. And they already started doing this. So when we realized that they would uh, uh, make Shebekina uh, um, at Twin City to Bakhmut, uh, we realized that we better uh, uh, retreat uh, just because we don't want other uh, uh, peaceful Russians, uh, civilians, to suffer uh, because of this. But again, our objective is not building. You know, our, our objective is uh, quite different and it's a feasible objective. And this is an interesting point because you write that there's the 60% uh, estimated of the Russian population who are this sort of uh, politically, um, I would say, almost like heads in the sand. You know, they, they they don't want to think about what's going on. As you say, they concentrate on their own lives. One part of the opposition is thinking we activate them and we make them politically active. You're saying that's not going to happen and that's not going to happen in any reasonable time frame until there's some dramatic other changes uh, in, in society. Is it also true that Prigozhin's uh, mutiny also demonstrated something rather interesting? Is that ordinary people came out on the streets? Um, one, because, you know, they wanted to take pictures for Instagram or whatever with, you know, and be part of historic events. But there seemed to be a genuine um, 
apolitical support for something or someone that's different and has a different agenda. Obviously, some people in the West are horrified because Prigozhin, what kind of character he is, and uh, there's a blood that's on his hands. But wasn't that an interesting phenomenon that people were willing to come out? Isn't there also a sense here that at that point in time, Prigozhin exuded strength and Putin exuded weakness? And this is the point at which, you know, allegiances will actually change, not through formal political sophisticated process but that very perception that putin gets to a point of abject weakness and somebody else is physically stronger than he is well, look uh, um, i think that uh, you were very uh, on spot uh, with explanation why prigozhin received support in terms of his strength um, I think that currently Russians are actually ready to support whatever opposition uh, to Putin. I don't want to say Putin, Moscow. Moscow, I think, is like the most horrible word. Uh, yeah, but uh, which needs to uh, elude strength, demonstrate masses. Um, because people just, they, they don't believe. They, they actually, they don't believe that Putin is weak. Uh, uh, they exactly think that Putin is the only force uh, in in the country, um, and uh, that's the main problem. That's uh, the main problem for the opposition, that the opposition cannot act uh, uh, because people think that uh, the opposition is weak. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, when they see this armed man. Um, then that's fine. Um, and uh, I think that this uh, makes no difference between Legion Freedom of Russia uh, and uh, 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 military company Wagner uh, in, in this sense. People, people cannot tell uh, the, the difference in terms of ideas. But when they understand that it's anti-Putin and that it's with force, that it's armed, they're ready to support it, and that's what we saw during our raids to Belgrade. People are supporting uh, Legion Freedom of Russia. Obviously, it's uh, acting there in different circumstances. Uh, you know, it's not just peaceful entry to the city, but still, you know, they're being patted on shoulders, they're being greeted with hugs, and so it's it's all very friendly. And uh, of course, you know, you you um, you were running companies. Um, as a tech entrepreneur, you were in the uh, Russian parliament as a deputy during the period where Putin consolidated power. I know we're sort of coming to the end here, uh, but I think um, it's kind of fascinating to see how he took over the reins of power, how he sort of uh, closed down independent media and, and so on. Um, does it concern you that we're now seeing the U.S., retreating in some ways from democratic norms and there are movements around the world that are learning from that methodology in which putin you know grabbed control and then maintained it through propagandist techniques uh, once learned these seem to have application in other countries as well which is a, a real concern oh i think it is a genuine concern I think that what, uh, what uh, Putin was diligently doing um, uh, recent years, if not decades, is a new international, but a, an international of dictators. Uh, 
to the country to interna communist international that was built by the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, that's a big problem, uh, obviously, because he's uh, reinforcing him, you know, in, in, in this sense. Uh, but uh, I uh, um, do believe that uh, this process started not with Putin. Uh, I do believe that uh, the first uh, uh, significant moment uh, uh, was in 1993 when uh, the West supported Yeltsin in, in, in shooting the parliament. Then it was 1996 when the West was supporting obviously falsified and unfair elections. Then the West actually supported Putin coming to power also in a very dubious uh, procedure which uh, violated the Russian uh, legislation. So we are uh, witnessing fruits uh, of, of the approach, which is there long time. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I understand the West has all the right uh, uh, to be selfish. Uh, uh, but uh, it's for Russians uh, to, uh, to decide. Uh, obviously, I would very much like the West not to support the bad guys. I am very much uh, concerned that even now uh, uh, you know, it would willingly uh, uh, applaud uh, replacement of Hitler with Hebels uh, or with Himmler, uh, if it would be a replacement which would lead to the uh, to the end of uh, military hostilities in Ukraine at the moment. But uh, the loss would be way greater long term. That's why we are uh, working to convince people that the only way for long-lasting international peace and security is the democratic political change in Russia. All the rest is a very short living uh, and very bad replacement. It's uh, managing the crisis rather than solving it, which I think comes down to yep, the, totally. uh, the key problem with, uh, with what the US yeah. administration is currently doing. Ilya, I know you have uh, a million meetings to, to go to and things yes. to do. <laughs> uh, it's been an incredible privilege speaking to you. Uh, good luck with all your endeavors. Thank you so much for making your time to speak to the channel. Thank you very much for having me.